Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the sixth chapter of Daniel. We're going to return to our studies this week in Daniel, Daniel chapter six, page 630 in the church Bibles. We're going to read the whole chapter, actually, then a brief prayer before we get, get started. So Daniel chapter six, page 630 in the church Bibles. Let's hear the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to send him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce that decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about this royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of the nobles, so that, his, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. And he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed 
and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. Thanks be to God for that lengthy reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, please, for Jesus' sake, make this book live in us. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior and make this book live in us. Amen. Well, it's probably no surprise to you that chapter 6 is, I suspect, one of the most familiar stories in the whole of the Bible. I mean, even people who know very little about the Bible probably know about Daniel in the lion's den. And many of you have probably already told this children, or excuse me, story to your kids, to your grandkids. However, we've been saying this over and over again. If we are tempted to take these stories and reduce them to some kind of like moral lesson for kids, then we miss God's intent completely. Or if we try to reduce these stories to some kind of secret to success, again, we miss it as well. Because it's very possible to take these stories... And specifically here in chapter 6, and approach them in, in just uh, a moralistic way. And even a centered, self-centered way. Okay, so, <clears throat> excuse me. These people were very good, and you should be very good as well. Uh, Daniel was very strong, you should be strong. Daniel was brave, and you should be brave too. Now, there may be a bit of value in that, but it's not why God gave us the book of Daniel. And it's certainly not the message of this chapter six because we've told ourselves again and again as we've been working our way through Daniel that this book was originally written for people living in exile, God's people living in exile in Babylon and now in the Medo-Persian Empire. So you remember they had been taken from their home. They were living in a strange land. They were surrounded by strange people. On the surface, it seemed like their God was defeated soundly. They no longer had their temple. They no longer had any religious ceremony whatsoever. They had very little. All their greatness is gone. The wind now is to their face. It's not to their back. And the temptation was there for them to just hang it all up. Psalm 137.4. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? We're just not going to do it. It's all over. It's never going to be great again. Never. Daniel writes to them and he shows them very, very plainly because just think of all the magnificent miracles and deliverances that God gives to Daniel and his friends. Daniel's saying it is not over and God is working every one of his purposes out. God's not missing a one. And you see, Daniel, he doesn't have any of that stuff either. There's no ceremony for Daniel. There's no people, no temple for Daniel. 
However, Daniel does pray. And he's very old now, but Daniel's a good boy. And Daniel keeps doing his duty wherever God puts him. And Daniel shows them that even though you don't have, all, you don't have none of the externals of religion, there's no temple, there's no people, there's no song, there's no mechanics of worship, it's all been gone or it's destroyed. As it is for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, you probably notice in the worship folder, there's a church in India, their whole church, gone. Daniel says to us, God still remains God. And God's access, that's the same as well. And God's plans are being executed precisely, even though it may not seem so, even though it doesn't seem like if we would, we're on the winning team. So this book of Daniel comes to his readers then and now who are just tempted to give up on God Tempted to think that there'll never, ever be any deliverance at all. It's never going to be good again. It's never going to be great again, ever. However, Daniel's life and his three friends' life shows us again and again that there is certainly deliverance. There is deliverance. But, listen carefully, not just for God's people, the Jews, right? Because we've been paying attention to that. This is, this is what I love about these, these narrative stories in the first six chapters of Daniel. God's deliverance is for his people, check. But God also wants to deliver and save wicked Gentiles and wicked pagan king. And I take comfort in that because I have a great proclivity to be a wicked Gentile and I need to be saved. So each story then fuels the reader to see that even though the great kingdoms of the world seem so strong and they seem like they're in control and they oppose God, They oppose God's work. They oppose God's worship. And they oppose God's witness in the world. Even though that's all happening, God still remains God. God remains God. And God is going to accomplish every one of his purposes. Okay, which is what? Well, I'll give you at least two. One, God will bring glory to his name. And two, God will save salvation. God will save his people. So loved ones, if you're listening and you're thinking this through, it would be wrong for us to moan and groan about how the world is going to to hell in a handbasket and say things are not what they used to be. Clear that out of your minds. God is working out every one of his purposes as year succeeds to year. Nothing catches him by surprise. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21. He works through this. God sets up times and God sets up seasons. And we're not talking seasons like fall, winter, spring and all that. No. God changes societies. He's in control of all that. Daniel 2.21 and Daniel chapter 4 verse 35. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven. And the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back God's hand ever in any generation. And say to God, what have you done? What's what's happening here, God? And you see, when we humble ourselves and remember our sin forfeited us of our rights and life before a holy God. And we don't deserve any of the good we know and have and is coming. But still God gives. When we get that then our souls can be quiet and soothed. Which is why, now think with me, 
Which is why in all these stories, Daniel is the cool and the calm one. And those who understand themselves as being in control, and those who say, we're going to get Daniel good, we're going to get Daniel's friends good, we're going to get his God, those who say all that, they are the ones that are rattled, and they lose, and some even die. Nothing is out of control. Nothing is going to get out of control. Remember we said a few weeks ago, the hardest doctrine probably for man is the sovereignty of God. It either humbles us or it sets us to rage. And so here in chapter 6 is a classic example of God's sovereign purpose working itself out even though Daniel is the one who seems like he's as good as dead. 122 enemies. And Daniel's going to live and they're going to die. So again, if you approach these stories as just simply nice moral lessons for you or your kids or some kind of recipe for success, absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. It does you no good. Why? Here's why. This is a story of an innocent man, a picture of Jesus, the one to come, pushing 80 years of age through a plot by his peers Sends to die because he chooses loyalty to God over compliance to the state. Let me say that again. This is a story of an innocent man, a prototype of Jesus, pushing 80 years of age through a plot by his peers. Sends to die because he chooses loyalty to God over compliance to an arbitrary subjective law which came from the Medo-Persian Empire. And that is what is recorded for us here. That's the story. And Jesus would tell the story showing us why Daniel was a picture of him, a pattern of the one Jesus to come. And you see, that immediately takes us way beyond the realm of Daniel was purposeful and you should be purposeful and Daniel was intentional and we should be intentional and all that stuff. Now, three things have to be said before we get to the text, which we won't finish this Lord's Day, Lord willing, next time. Three things. One, ask yourself the question, when does Daniel's great test come? Right? This is Daniel's life or death test. When does it come? Daniel's great test comes towards the end of his spiritual pilgrimage on this earth, not at its beginning. I mean, we might be used to thinking that we get our big test in the early part or the middle part of our existence. Clearly, that's not the case here. Therefore, we can't think that if we're just able to live long enough, that there'll be nothing left to tempt us at all. I mean, so far, that's not working at all for me. I don't know how it's working for you. Actually, I find that the older I get, the temptations grow worse. And I find I need more grace than I ever thought I knew at 20 years old, at 30 years old, and so on. And so because of that, if we're tempted to think that we're able to turn spiritual things down as we grow older, a kind of, we're just going to check out from that realm, and so we're going to take ourselves out of the race set before us, and so we're just going to get older, we're going to do other stuff, and then we're going to die. Daniel's like, maybe not. Maybe there will be some huge test, some huge encounter for the best of us here. When we are really old, just like Daniel. And so part of the warning here is, if you're not getting ready now, how will you be ready then? 
Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was a young Daniel. His test came and he passed. And moment by moment of his life, we find a faithful Daniel. Now Daniel chapter 6 is pushing 80 years old. And this is his test. Live or die, Daniel, which one? And you see, if we're not engaged in the things of God, if we're not engaged in the reading of our Bible, engaged in the life of the church, and we're banking on the fact that because we've checked out, I've taken myself out of the battle, I've become like Switzerland, I'm neutral, I'm just going to go off into the sunset. Daniel's like, where did you ever get that idea? Where did you get that idea? We're all in the front lines of God's army. We may not have a clue how to fight, but we're in the battle. By the way, this just comes right to my mind. My son and I used to have these conversations. Like, if we were in actual war, do you think that we would survive it? We both came to the conclusion that I would be dead in the first minutes of any war that I ever had to go to, a physical war. (laughs) Daniel says, he's not going to turn. He will not capitulate. Daniel's like, I have not lived my life this long for God to turn now. And it's a wonderful word. It's actually a word for those of you that are a little older. And there are people watching you to see how you're going to run all the way to the end. To see if you actually will breast the tape. No silly stuff. No checking out to the end. And Daniel here helps us. That's the first thing. Second, look at Daniel's life as an exile. If you had 30 minutes today, this is what I would spend 30 minutes meditating on and thinking, thinking about. Daniel worships God. Daniel works for God. He bears witness to God. He's pushing 80 years old, and he excels in everything, in the God stuff and in his work stuff. He's in a foreign land, working to a foreign, foreign government, hostile, but still he prospers. And you see, Daniel answers this question, does full involvement... In a pagan culture, that's Daniel, right? Will that compromise our faith? Daniel's answer to the question, will full involvement in a pagan culture compromise our faith? He answers that with a resounding, no way, Jose. No way. No way. He can be fully involved, excel, and still be faithful. Daniel's exiles had three choices, by the way, when they went there. First, they could have just went right into the culture. They could have assimilated into the culture. And they could have said, well, we can't beat them. Let's join them. Any dead fish flows with the current. We'll just become Babylonians. They could have said that. You know, God wasn't everything we thought he would be. So we're just going to check out of that thing. We're going to check into this thing. People walk away from Christianity all the time. People leave the church of Jesus Christ all the time. That was one option. Second option was separation. This is probably where most of us would be tempted to do. We're just going to retreat. We're going going to go into our Christian subcultures, our Christian ghettos, our Christian boroughs, and we're going to do the rabbit hopping, hopping into rabbit holes, and we're going to get together, and we're going to hide from the world. We're going to have our holy huddles, circle the wagons. We're going to thank God, Luke 18, that we're not like all those bad people out there. And essentially, we just make ourselves invisible to the world. We come here, go home, go there, but it's always in the group. Third option, Daniel. Daniel chose participation. He didn't choose assimilation, separation, participation. 
a qualified participation, a yes but to involvement in the culture. Daniel, again, Daniel was a valuable member of at least three pagan governments. He gets promoted again and again, even though the Bible's clear. He was pristine. He was loyal to his God. Think about that. I mean, we tend to think, okay, this is how it's going to work in America. You get a, you get a, Christian Congress and the Christian Senate and you're going to get a Christian president and a Christian Supreme Court. Christian, Christian, Christian. Everything's going to be great. Daniel shows us we don't need that. We just need one good guy serving God. One good guy. One good guy. Chapter 4 gets a pagan king to write a letter to the world. Daniel's God is God. And here again in chapter 6 the same thing. And we need to think through those things. Daniel was there to bear witness to God. And by the way, the word witness is the word in the New Testament, martyr. What is a martyr? A martyr is a person who will suffer death as the penalty of witnessing to and refusing to, as in the case of Daniel, refusing to renounce God by way of prayer. That's Daniel. Okay, thing one, big test comes at the end of Daniel's life. Don't forget that. Thing two, we can be fully engaged in the culture and still be faithful. Thing three, if our view of what it means to love and serve Jesus Christ has only have to do with freedom from pain, self-fulfillment, the pursuit of ease, prosperity, then you'll find chapter six a very, very difficult chapter to swallow. Because Daniel essentially says, I would rather die than not pray to God for 30 days. I ask myself the question, is there anything that I would die for? Is there anything that you would die for? Daniel gives us an answer. On to the text. First of all, if your Bible's open, you'll notice in verse 3, first word, Daniel was distinguished. Now, up till this point in human history, the Medo-Persian Empire was the biggest empire of the world. King, verse 1, had a responsibility to make sure things work right. And so you'll see there in verse 2, he develops this structure of government. Three administrators, one being Daniel, over 120 satraps. The satraps would be something like a governor, something like that. The intent of the structure was that the king, verse 2, would not suffer loss. In other words, the king would not lose territory and the king would not lose taxation. Seeing how good things unfold and seeing how Daniel is just striking, verse 3, he has exceptional qualities, the king decides to essentially make Daniel the prime minister. He's going to get a huge promotion. Says Joyce Baldwin in her commentary, a senior person known to be impervious to corruption would be an obvious candidate for the top job. That's Micah 6.8, right? He has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Take that verse, apply it to Daniel. In other words, there wasn't going to be any backroom deals with Daniel. There wasn't going to be none of this, none of this uh, Colorado bulldogging of people and resources with Daniel. None of this, hey, he can cut me a deal. I know this guy who knows this guy who knows this guy. We can get discounts. Daniel's like, no, that's not how it's going to be done. He was, verse 4b, he was trustworthy. He wasn't corrupt. He wasn't negligent. In other words, if, eight, fifth, if 9 o'clock was the time to show up, Daniel's like 8.58. And if 5 o'clock was the time to leave, Daniel would be there like 5.02, 5.03. Conduct worthy of the God that he served. 
You said Monday, be there Monday. You said X, I'll do my best to do X. And if you think about it, if we're going to be a witness to the world, specifically in, in the workplace, those of us who work, instead of carrying a huge Bible, instead of having, you know, like bumper stickers and all that kind of stuff, which you should, if you want to have, of course, don't you think that wonderful example for people would be that quality of Christ that we bear witness to Christ in our work? And don't you think that's a far more compelling uh, testimony to the outsider to be really good at our job, to be really pure in a dirty world, to be really stable and really generous in a shaky and greedy world? Don't you think that's the way to go? Daniel would. Now, you would think that such a distinguished person would be held in high regard with his peers. I mean, just the simple fact that he's good at what he does and we need, he, we need his help. But you see, that wasn't the case. Second and final point, he was despised. Because Daniel was so distinguished, he was despised. They hated him. In other words, Daniel was going to get a promotion, which more than likely meant that some other people were going to get a demotion. So he was going to get the corner office. He was going to get the biggest desk, the biggest window, and they wouldn't. And for this, they despised him. For this, they clearly become jealous. Someone once said, you can be the moon and still be jealous of the stars. The Bible says, Proverbs 27, 4, anger is cruel, fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? And you get a good sense of this Based on what they said in verse 13, if your Bible is open, you'll see this. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Now, you got to think, why would they say that? The king knows already that Daniel is from Judah. I mean, the king has a fondness for Daniel. So why are they doing that? Pretty simple. What do they want to do? They want to demean Daniel. They're not saying the things that are true about Daniel. He's distinguished. He no, has no corruption. He's a man of integrity. They're just saying he's from Judah. In other words, he's not one of us. He's a second-class citizen. We pounded Judah. Remember that, king? According to the law of the Persians, the Jewish race was part of an inferior race. This is anti-Semitism at its worst. Okay? Now, because they are unable to find fault with Daniel in his work, that's verse 5, they come up with a plan to try to corner him with his worship. That's verse 7. In other words, they arrange a situation where Daniel would have to choose between the law of the land and the law of his God. So they do what these kind of people do. They begin to maneuver the situation. They begin to use deceitful tactics. Verse 7 and 8, I'm quoting now. All agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, put on your thinking cap, please. Ask yourself this question. What right did they have to make this arbitrary law? Right? What right did these governors have to make this arbitrary subjective law? Because you see, in Daniel opposing the law, again, this is a 30-day law, so that's kind of strange already. 
And Daniel opposing the law. Daniel was not only protesting his right to pray to his own God. No, he was also protesting against a view of the state. And, and, and by the way, that's probably why Daniel in verse 10, as soon as he learns of the decree, he goes right to his prayer room, right? Right to that prayer. By him protesting this law, he was protesting a view of the state which refuses to recognize that there is a higher law than itself from which every inalienable, absolute, undisputable human right originates and comes from. That's important you understand that. They didn't see that. There is a law that is above every law. Now, I want you to think with me because this will help us amazingly in our current climate because I think you know that in our current climate, law doesn't come from a nature's law or doesn't come from... Um, uh, what would be the term? Natural law. But it basically comes from, you get a whole lot of people thinking it's true, then it has to be true. Now, hold that thought in your mind. Remember, Daniel served foreign governments with excellence. I mean, you can make the case they are excelling because Daniel was so excellent. Still, when governments make arbitrary laws, subjective laws, refusing to recognize at a bare minimum natural law, Natural law being that which is built into the fabric of society, of humanity, right? Uh, We know it's wrong to steal. Everybody knows it's wrong to steal. We know it's wrong to, to murder. We know that's wrong. We know it's wrong to lie. That's natural law. That's why the commandments are so important. So when that kind of law is ripped from society, then human rights are diminished And every culture then is in a dangerous position. And indeed, democracy itself. Because democracy presupposes that there is a natural law, a higher law from which every other law emanates from. Those of you who understand jurisprudence, jurisprudence, excuse me. This is the difference between natural law and positive law. Positive law is when the author of the law is the source of the law. He, he is the one, subjective. He is the one. He is the author or the source of the law. And that's what was happening here. You have 122 governors. They want a law which stems only for their desire, only their will to rid themselves of Daniel. And that is in part what Daniel is protesting. And I want you to see that. Only 122 guys basically say, this is what we want. King signed the bill. No attachment to natural law. Just just get rid of Daniel. Positive law. And I want you to notice verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 11. They're all in agreement. They're all in agreement. Now, loved ones think in the realm of politics. When is the last time that we know that politicians, all of them, actually agree with one another about anything? I mean, someone once told me, you put politicians together end to end and they couldn't reach a conclusion. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's what someone told me. But this is what I want you to see. Where do you get all these people, where all these officials finally agreeing with one another? Where does that happen? Ask yourself, where does it happen? Here's your answer. They agree in opposition to the living God. That's where they all agree. They agree in opposition to the living God. So that all that would divide them, they set it aside so that they can remove the man of God from his post by his murder. 
What are they saying? This is what they're saying. We are sovereign. We are masters of our fate. And we actually can arrange things for Daniel's fate as well. Well, how do they do that? Verse 7, they lie to the king. They tell him all the officials have all agreed. Is that true? Did they all agree? Wasn't Daniel one of the officials? Daniel's not there. Why doesn't the king see that? Well, the king, with all his wisdom, he gets duped. His ego is stroked. His head is high in the clouds. He doesn't see what he should see. Oh, king, if any of that praying stuff is going to go on for 30 days, which is still just so weird to me. 30 days. Just to you, king, and our gods. You, can, you know, the king's like, hey, hey, there you go. You guys are finally starting to see how terrific I am. You're starting to recognize my op- op- awesomeness. Good plan, guys. Good plan. Psalm 2.2. The rulers of the earth rise up and take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. That's exactly what is happening here. And so these men, these 122 satraps, with all their evil cleverness and their cowardliness, they arrange things that if Daniel dies, the blame is going to be on one man. One man. The king himself. Because after all, The king is the one who signs the paper. He signs the thing into law. Now let's let's close with this by thinking about this question. Where is the real conflict here, right? Where where is the real conflict? We peel back all the layers of everything. Where is the conflict? It is essentially this. It's the one that's been going on all through the Bible and all through human history. This is light versus darkness. This is truth versus a lie. Peter describes the conflict in the evil one as a roaring lion looking for someone, some Daniel, to devour. And here the lion is going to do the business of the devil and try to kill and destroy this man of God. Now, loved ones, think with me. Does any part of the story sound really familiar to another story we know of another man in the New Testament? Because Daniel is exposing himself to the power of death so that his enemies will be conquered. And they will be conquered. Just like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He exposed himself to death so that he could conquer his enemies, namely sin and death. And do you remember bits and pieces of Jesus' story? The enemies of Christ had to come to grips that they could find nothing bad about Jesus. There's nothing wrong with him. So what did they do? Well, they do what humans do. They begin to twist his words. They pervert the facts. They did some fictional legal maneuvering. Thus, they pervert justice. And remember how all the politicians of Christ's day, they were finally united around their opposition against Christ. Luke chapter 23, verse 12. That day, Herod, politician, and Pilate, politician, became friends. Before this, they had been enemies Friends now, united around the destruction of the Savior of the world. See? So this isn't new. I've told you again and again, the evil one has very little creativity. Very little creativity. This story plays itself out again and again. And so in this context, Daniel is saying, there is no God but the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So your law is bunk and I will pray. Jesus, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to God except through me. 
John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Anyone who comes before me is a thief and a robber. I'm the only way. I'm the gate. I'm the bread of life. There's no tolerance in that. And that won't work in pluralism. Paul, one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ. This is where this story is headed. You know, for the first time, honestly, I'm beginning to understand what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, right? Because of the gospel, because of Christ. Not because of political notions or secondary issues or personal options, none of that stuff, but because of Christ, because of Christ. Because I say Jesus is the only way to God and Jesus is your only hope in life and in death. And he suffered and died for your sins to make a way so you could have life with him now and life with him forever. And and just a safe reading of history tells me, one, I better be prepared for that day. I want to live a long time. I got a whole lot more to do for Jesus. So I better be prepared for that day. Or at the very least, I better get the next generation prepared for that day. Okay, what are you saying? Well, this is what I'm saying. I need to prepare myself and to prepare the next generation to do this. To love sin-filled people like me enough that I would lay my life down to tell them of his love and hold to his truth. I'm going to say it again. To love sin-filled people like me enough that I would lay my life down to tell them of his love and hold to his truth truth. Just like Daniel, just like Jesus, just like Peter, just like Paul. It's funny, isn't it? Not funny, funny, but it's just unique. We're talking about death. And after we sing this hymn, we're going to go to this table, the communion table, and it proclaims the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, you could say it like this. It proclaims the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare ourselves to receive from the table. Would you bow with me, please? Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your tender mercy. We thank you for the courage of Daniel and Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who before uh, the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame. And you, God, have him now at your right hand, for which we praise your holy name for. Help communion to mean more than it ever has, please now, for Jesus' sake. Amen.